Hey, blues lovers, pundits, aficionados, stealers, poets, musicians, artists, and blues people. <laughs> I started planning this podcast at the beginning of 2021, but for many reasons, it, it took me a while to get it off the ground. You know, trying to survive as an artist in a land that eats artists alive isn't easy. I would, however, like to thank the Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events for their continued support of my work. I received an individual artist grant to help launch Blues and World Report, and it's been it's been helpful. I'm still loath to go back into these small music clubs where I've made my living for the better part of my adult life. Um, these breakthrough cases are becoming more and more rampant amongst my colleagues. You know, with liars who are absent of the ability to think critically, like the ignorant and sociopathic quarterback from Green Bay Packers, Aaron Rodgers, who is all over the news this week, it's foolish to think that he doesn't have a co counterpart in the blues industry. In fact, he has many. And I've got an 86-year-old mother I take care of, so I'm trying to be really careful. But I did get to go to New York City um, and help my dear friend Ruben Santiago Hudson launch his Broadway play, Lack Lackawanna Blues back in September. We actually got to play at Minton's Playhouse in Harlem, the iconic jazz venue. And I saw Ruben's place, Lackawanna Blues. Wow, that was really amazing, really special. And it, it's been extended twice so far um, and runs until November the 12th. So if you are anywhere near the Eastern Seaboard, check it out. And the other night, I had a really fun jam here in Chicago at Rose's Lounge with Little Ed Williams. I'm going to try and get both those artists on this show soon, so stay tuned. If you want to support this podcast, please consider going to paypal.me forward slash Chicago Wind, W-I-N-D, and become a supporter. We sure would appreciate it. I interviewed Kenny BDI Smith on March 26, 2021. We were all beginning to just come out of the lockdown a few weeks uh, before we got our vaccinations. And Kenny was at his home in a northern suburb in Chicago. Um, and we were still using Zoom at the time to do pretty much everything. And um, I'd like to just share some of his bio with you guys. Honored all across the globe for his exceptional achievements, Kenny won the Living Blues Award for the Most Outstanding Musician on Drums in 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15. In 2009, an album entitled Chicago Blues, A Living History, uh, on which Kenny re recorded, was nominated for a Grammy Award. This same album won Best Blues Album in 2009 by the Académie de Jazz de France. Kenny is a 10-time nominee and a 2021 winner of the Blues Music Awards for Best Drummer by the Blues Foundation. His father, Willie Big Eyes Smith, played drums for Muddy Waters Band in the early 1960s and then again from 1968 through 1980 and was featured on all of Muddy's Grammy-winning albums. Kenny BDI Smith, one of the best-known living blues drummers today learned 99% of what he knows about drumming from his father. Kenny has revitalized and created new interpretations of legendary blues drummers and modern drummers as he pushes blues drumming to new, innovative, and traditional styles. Ladies and gentlemen, Kenny Smith. Welcome. Well, welcome. Welcome to Blues and World Report. Blues. 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 
News and World Report. I'll be interviewing all different kinds of artists whose work has been inspired and influenced by blues music. I hear so much talk about keeping the blues alive. Keeping the blues alive? No. I'm thinking the blues keeps us alive. Be careful how you and of course, we're going to get down to the real nitty-gritty with the greatest blues artists on the planet. How you doing, Kenny Smith? All right, Mr. Matthew Scola, I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to see you, man. You, man. You too. Digging the facial hair. <laughs> it's rocking and rolling. <laughs> yeah, man. I'm keeping got, it. I'm keeping it for a while. It's uh, what they call a hipster beard. It's just got to <laughs> just got to grow it out about eight inches or so. And there you um, go. I had a COVID. Um, I had a COVID beard. My wife made me, <laughs> and my mother made me <laughs> get rid of it. They're <laughs> like, God, do you look fucking old, man? How have things been at home? You've got three little ones, right? That's right. And so, and everybody's been home. That's got to have been very challenging. Uh, how has that all played out? Been okay? You know, that first couple of weeks when they, when they hit the fan and they uh, start shutting the shoes, schools down, that's when, you know, you were just trying to make that adjustment to figure out, um, you know, how to get the kids to keep learning. You know, they, they smooth selling, getting the work done now. Yeah, they go into, the, they got their own little office rooms and they do it. <laughs> I don't know. They, they, yeah, they get in there and do it. I'm no struggling with it or nothing now. Yeah. The kids are so resilient. It's oh, yeah. just amazing. It's it, exactly. it's the parents, I think, that have a harder time, as they like to say these days, pivoting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I hear you, man. But so, any of the three show any interest in um, music? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I'm, for sure, my. Uh, Clara, Clara Smith and Theodore, definitely. They both love music. Okay, now how old are they? Seven and four. Seven and four. They both they both uh, interested. My oldest actually can, she actually can play the drums too, but the ones I found out got that stage presence already is, is Clara. Clara, Teddy, they, they, I mean, they like, they're really into it all the time singing. Got singing last She's a seven-year-old? Yeah. Yeah, and Teddy. Yeah, so she's the middle child. The middle child, yeah. yeah. So she's doing, yeah, she's really doing good, man. And she's the power hitter. I mean, first on the drums, that girl got a power hit. Oh, wow. I'm not talking like a little, I'm not saying like, oh, it's my daughter. I'm saying like, this girl got a little hit, a little kick in her head. Wow. <laughs> yeah, even stronger than, wow. even, even like stronger than my, 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 little, my sons, you know, like she has, she has a little power hit when she's playing, yeah. How old were you when you started playing drums? Oh my goodness. When I started playing an actual drum kit, or I started before I started, well, I guess I would say about three when I would start beating on uh, my father's pad. You know, he would sit there and practice on his drum pad. So I was starting to kind of mimic him about three years old. When he sit there, grab his pad, I go sit there, grab my sticks. You know, if I couldn't beat on his pad, I'd go grab a pot or a pillow, you know, and sit next to him and play. <laughs> So Willie would sit in the living room with a pad and sticks. Pad and sticks on, on, the, on the drum pad, you know. Did it watching TV and, and stuff? Yeah, too. exactly, exactly. At a certain point, did he sit down with you 
and actually break down the rudiments of drumming and give you like a sort of formal drum lesson? Oh yeah, I mean, he did, he actually did that even with the drum pad. You know, he would take, you know, like right hand, left hand, you know, he would kind of do it and then tell me to do it, you know, follow him. So he would slow it down. Instead of practicing, he kind of was more practicing with me with that early. I mean, that was still at the, that was still about three, three and four, three and four um, in there. Then when you got on the kit, he, showed you the exactly. mechanics exactly. of that. Exactly, and that was like at four. I had the kit, I had the drum kit. I still had a drum kit. Um, I did. You do? <laughs> that's great. At the age of four, yeah. So that's when I got the real the real drum kit, like a real one. At the age yeah. of four? Yep. Wow. Lug yeah, lugly. Yep. Blue so, pearl, sparkling pearl. <laughs> so you're 44 now? I'm 45? 40, I'm 47, 47. You're 47? Yeah, yeah that makes sense because um, I think it was around 83 when I saw you, well, when you saw me sitting with your oh, yeah. dad. Yeah. 82 or 83. You, you told me you were seven years old. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Somewhere around there. Um, in Milwaukee, right? It was in Milwaukee. In Milwaukee. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but I want to stick to this drumming process first. Yeah. So you grew up watching your dad. When, when did you first see him play drums live? When I really... How old were you? kicked in to see him perform live. I must have been, he took me on the road, I think at, uh, shoot, 11, 11, like a, a weekend somewhere on the week, uh, like a festival somewhere. He must have taken you up to Milwaukee, obviously, that he did. At, at Century yeah. Hall when you saw, so you were about oh, seven I guess, years I old. I guess that's true, yeah, I guess that's true if I take back. But like I say, some of it's a blur, but that is true. I mean, the one that I actually, the one that I took in to really like, really taking in the music. You know, I was taking in the music. I knew the artists as blues artists at that time. To me, then it was going. I was going on the road. Um, you know, I see him. I would see him play. I still was looking at him play, and I hear I'm listening to the music. I was already drawing to it. But you know, it was more. I still was a kid. You know, drinking all the pop, soda pop, thinking everything, thinking I'm cool. You know, backstage, yeah, <laughs> backstage. Yeah. You know, thinking I'm cool. Yeah, yeah. So somewhere in there, yep. There's a great picture of you with that Margolin has Bob Margolin has of you sitting backstage with Muddy and Gatemouth Brown, and yeah. you've got Gatemouth's cowboy hat <laughs> Yeah. And you couldn't have been more than seven or eight years I, old. I'm going to go even lower. I'm not even, not even that. I was not even no, that I old, guess right? Even, yeah. yeah, I guess so. I guess when you asked me what show did I go see live or one that I remember as, you know, as an, uh, that I was taking in my brain. But then I, I went to that show. I think I was I probably was about four or five. Four or five. Yeah, yeah that's what you looked like. Yep. Yep. And my yep. mother was somewhere around there, I know. Oh, I'm you sure. <laughs> yeah. And how is she? She's doing great, man. Yeah, his mom's doing really good. Yeah, doing her thing. Yeah. Loving the grandbabies? Loving them, yep. We're getting ready to hopefully come see them pretty soon, too, coming over to the house. Uh, probably Maybe next week, maybe we get to come out here. That's awesome, man. And, um, and so you come from a, a really big family. Willie was a busy dude. Uh, oh, he yeah. had, uh, how many siblings do you have? <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god! How, how can what can I say? Uh, all I know, what is it? Eight girl, eight girls, five boys. Thirteen, thirteen of us. Thirteen of you. A lot of nieces and nephews. Definitely, definitely a lot of nieces and nephews for sure. I can't. Don't ask me to count them again. I can't even. I can't keep up with the count. <laughs> but it was a lot of nieces and nephews for sure. <laughs> well, I'll never forget the services when rest in peace your father passed and somebody was up there talking i can't remember who it was but somebody was up there eulogizing and said oh wait a minute uh i'd like 
everybody in the immediate oh, yeah. Smith family <laughs> to stand up, and half the church stood up. <laughs> and everybody's and everybody started laughing. It was like exactly. a it was a moment of, of beautiful levity <laughs> and of really acknowledging what an amazing legacy your dad had. And um, he did, man. He yeah, he did. He well on that story too. Y'all say, you know, I even on the road when we got older and I asked him, Well, I had so many kids. He said, Well, I was the only kid growing up. Mm. I said, When mm. I get a I'm gonna have a big family because he was the only kid growing up. So Wow. And yeah. so where do you fall in the chronology of the kids? Um, I fall third from the last. <laughs> third from the last. So we yeah, you saw me, I believe, at Century Hall, probably around 82, 83. Yeah. And you always told me that there was something that I sang that you remember, some lyric. Do you remember that? Oh, well, I remember Well, I remember you were um, on stage. And the reason it caught my attention is because I heard this song a million times. They were singing Long, uh, Long Distant Call. You know, I hear my phone ringing, you know, and I heard you make this sound with the harmonica sound like a telephone. So that drew my attention because I heard that. I hadn't heard that. Okay, I, I like that. You know, that's... So that was pretty, I thought that was cool. I imitated the telephone ring. Yeah. You, you, yes, with the, so I remember that, yeah. Oh, that's Shoot funny. That's <laughs> great memory. And um, so, you know, you obviously had a lot of influence come down through your father's playing, but you also have listed several other uh, drummers as influences on you. And Odie Payne, Fred Bilo. Earl Phillips, Ted Harvey, yeah. Louis Belson, S.P. Leary, Francis Clay, Sam yeah. Lay, and then Art Blakey yeah. uh, from the jazz end of things, Sonny Payne, and, and then, of course, Clifton James. Which of any of these artists ever sat down with you and, and taught you stuff, or did you just watch those guys and listen to their records? The ones that I can say that I remember off my bat, um, S.P. Leary, actually. You know, S.P. Leary, I sat down with him before even... And I was, I think, 80s, must have been 87 or something like that. Antone. The Blues Club in te in Austin, Texas. Antone's. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Go ahead. Blues Club in Austin, Texas. I was there. It was doing the anniversary there. So I remember sitting down with uh, S.P. Leary. He just kind of, you know, I'm still young, very young, but he, and he knew I was playing drums too. But he was, you know, he was very hip and he always, he always said, you know, like all of them would tell me, you know, like, okay, I'm glad you're playing drums. You know, I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy you're doing that, car carrying it on, but make sure, you know, uh, basically make good choices, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. just make good choices, you know, mm -hmm. I would say, you know, so it was kind of always kind of pushing for me to, you know, just stay on a good path and try to keep moving with the music, enjoying the music. And they did show me some things. I mean, there's, I, I could keep you on the phone for hours and I was just telling you, you know, the things I even picked up from even just S.B. Leary. I picked up all, a lot of the brushwork from S.B. Leary, you know, just, uh, he played, they were brushes, but he didn't play them like brushes. He used them in a very, in a, in a different way, you know, like it was almost like a, a stick almost, the brushes. So I'm definitely learning that. I learned that specifically from, yeah, uh -huh. he has on, yeah. And he, like I said, and so he, in that way, he kind of, I just picked that up just, and he, you know, from, they always like, seemed like family to me. It was so much, like I said, it just kind of was like, being that young, it was just more like uh, an uncle to me, all of them in that way, because that's how they kind of treated me, you know, in that. <laughs> S.P. Leary and 
Willie Big Eyes Smith, man. I mean, you know, those that's yeah. Chicago blues architects right there, you know. You're carrying yeah. on a um, tradition and a legacy that is something that you experience firsthand. You know, it's a treasure, yeah. and you put, and you possess it. One of the gold standards, along with your dad, um, in Chicago blues drumming, and a guy who maybe brought some different technique to Chicago blues was Fred Bilo. The word is that uh, Dave and Lewis Myers um, grabbed him out of jazz conservatory and um, mm -hmm. started teaching him how to play deep Chicago blues. Yeah. But yeah. he brought some sensibility of the, you know, and some technique of the jazz shuffle to the blues. Was there difference between the technique that Bilo pioneered and the way that your dad played and the way SP played? Bilo, he, you know, he plays a song like, you know, um, you know, oh baby, you gonna miss me when I'm gone. You know, that's a prime example of, you hear you hear subtle feels in the drum feels in the song mm -hmm. when it's played, opposed to just hearing a, a regular straight shuffle, two and four shuffle. You know, whether it's the cymbal or, or the snare, it doesn't matter. It's just the fact that he's adding those feels uh, that's kind of flavoring the music. You know, they're not just like wham, bam, bam, thank you, ma'am, crash on the cymbal. He's like, it's really adding flavor to the song. So. Right, and he's not just keeping time, he's listening to everything, and he's part of the exactly. magic of, exactly. the, of the music. Yeah. Yep. Oh Baby, one of the great Chicago blues classics. It was written by Walter and by Willie Dixon, the great bassist and blues impresario of the 1950s and 60s and 70s. And um, that song is a wonderful example of how Freddie Bilo completely busted wide open Chicago blues drumming. You've integrated all of these different uh, amazing influences that you've had over your whole life into the Kenny Smith sound. That would that's it. Yeah, that's that's the only way to put. Or oh, they sound how you want to have you have you want to call it. But yeah, mm -hmm. that's how it comes out. Yep, that's what it comes yeah. out. Now. On a contemporary tip, who are the drummers that you listen to? Are there any drummers? of your generation in other genres um, that you listen to, or there are there beats that people are making that you're paying attention to? Um, I mean, I'm, a, I'm more like, a, I guess I'm, I'm all over the place with beats. Yeah, if I, if there's no, there's no, there is not one particular person or one 
particular beat. Uh, if, it's just, if it's something new that I haven't heard, you know, my brain just kind of picks it up and takes it in and mm-hmm. say reserve it for some for when I need it. Kind of, it kind of put it put it in the file cabinet. Exactly, kind of what happens. With, you know, kind of what happens to me. You know, like as I've you know I started out playing, you know, hardcore, um, traditional blues. You know, but I can I can I can jump all over the place these days. You know. And that's great home. that's yeah. yeah yeah and that's usually how great sound innovators evolve is that they listen to other genres and you know yeah i mean start with a really great anchor and really great roots but listen to a lot of different kinds of music and oh yeah um, just understand that it's all music that's and right. that it can all be very useful that's right the one of the cool beats that i love playing with you is the mojo beat and that's a very specific chicago kind of thing but there's a lot of ways to play a mojo beat there is, there is. and you know the there's that clippity clop kind of thing that you do on you know it ain't right yeah. and um yeah and then there's the muddy mojo working uh you know full-on thing who did did you listen to f- to get your uh different mojo beats on um well, the first one was uh woolies because this was the hardest right. i mean the hardest now that was why was that it's not it's just not your typical it's not your typical country beat you know it's not a typical country beat you know that's the that's simplified version of it which you know still fine the simplified version, mm-hmm. but he he added his own little touch to that uh to that song in a way that uh yeah it's more like like you would say for fred milo willie had a he had his own touch and his own approach that was real smooth and cool and 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 powerful at the same time too. So right. with that song, that was one of the hardest ones. And that's one that I, I literally cried. I mean, he did come in the band's basement and help me play that, play that song. <laughs> How old were you when you're sitting there crying and on your drum pad? 11, 12, 11, 12, somewhere in there. 11, 12, frustrated like a motherfucker. I mean, all day, all day long <laughs> could not play this song. I know I could play it, you know, I could play the beat. I could keep the groove. Mm-hmm. But I could right. not get. I could not grasp what was happening in the song. But that was just some one of the grooves that was very unique by him, and and I learned his first. Um, and it, and it uh-huh. still took me years. It still took me years and years to to really say oh, I got this beat. That was John Primer singing and playing guitar on Sugar Sweet with the great Kenny Smith showing off his mojo prowess. Yeah, it took him years to get there, but boy, did he ever get there. That album, Chicago Blues Living History, garnered a Grammy nod in 2010. It was produced by Larry Scholar, my big brother, and um, it's a wonderful record. You should check it out. Wasn't Sam Lay really famous for his mojo beat? And, and uh, Sam, so Sam had a Sam had a good uh, mojo beat too, and I and then he so I liked his too because he's he had a more of a 
uh, a bouncier touch, you know, right. a bouncier touch, you know, with his, he always bounced in it with his song. So I liked mm -hmm. his, I liked his version of that too. Uh, yeah, I always added the tom, a little Tom in there, you know, a little Tom Toms in there too. Right, right. It, you know, so um, then there's the train beat, you know, Chigga Chigga, <laughs> I call it Chigga Chigga beat, you know, you're playing, or good and plenty, people call it, you know. Um, Oh, so yeah, and that's is that's considered a a type of mojo. That's a, beat, yeah, that's right? a, that's another one too. Yeah. I call I call those yeah. are the ones um, I, I, when you intermediate when you just got to keep that beat and don't really know where to go. That's that you, you, when all else fails, you can go there and hold those. Right, that country beat, right. that country country beat, two, you know, two four beat or the train beat. You do do one of those, you you, you can get through the song without killing the band. <laughs> Yeah, I mean the mojo beat is kind of a one two three one two three, right? Mm -hmm. It's like a it's like a, a polka. Oh yeah, polka. exactly. There you go. It, yeah, and it's, yeah, it's got that little yeah, but but it, but it does, but it doesn't. That's the that's the fun part about it. <laughs> <laughs> that's the that's the part that drives you crazy when you're trying to understand it. You know, like I swear I cried for that song many times. <laughs> The bass player and the drummer have a very intimate relationship with one another musically, and you've worked with some of the greatest bass players in the world. I was wondering if you had any favorites that you'd like to share with us. Who have you really loved and locked with? Oh man, uh, oh man, there's there's a lot, but I give you I give you a couple off the bat, you know, that we know too. I rem uh, I did I did I like Vamp. I did like him. I like the style of playing on and off mm -hmm. the stage. I just like them, you know. So, yeah, because. Uh, Vamp Samuels, Willie Vamp Samuels. Yeah, yeah yep. he, brought, he yeah. brought something to the yep. table. He definitely brought something to the table. And, you know, he was a, just a fun guy to be around. And he brought that to the stage, even with his own bass plan, too. He was willing to yeah. listen to the music, you know, take it, take it, take it to some places. You know, I appreciate that. I definitely appreciate that. You know, I tried. And Felton Cruz is my other one that we just, you know, then Felton played so much the day other night. We just don't matter. We can we can close eyes, don't even matter, and be in a different room. Doesn't matter. We can lock real good together too. Oh man, you guys have been all over the world together. Yeah, yeah. Felton Cruz is a good, cool guy. Cool guy. You know. Yeah. Well, he's he's really amazing, and he brings a kind of. Um, we're talking about Felton Cruz, yeah. who is a really eclectic musician who's really you know, the blue scene has been blessed to have as a fixture for the last 25 30 years and he has a really prestigious pedigree and background he his his first gig was um with uh minnie ripperton who was oh Aaron? it was his very yeah. Okay. No, Felton Felton Cruz. His very first gig was with Minnie Ripperton. Oh wow. Okay. I mean, whose first gig is with Minnie Ripperton? <laughs> <laughs> and then he goes on to play with and record with Miles yeah. Davis and you know, is on the road for years with the great Charlie Musselwhite and played for a few years with the great Billy Branch and he's just um an amazing yeah. uh part of the Chicago blues. For um, sure. Thing. And you guys have recorded together extensively. Um, what um, do you look for from a bass player in the studio? Um, I just look for them to just lock into the music. Because when you're in a studio, you know, you're, you still got to keep your feel, but you want to, I mean, you want to, you, you're recording, but, you know, you just don't tighten up. I look for them to kind of keep their true feel as they were on stage, you know, when they play them. Just forget about the right. record, forget about 
uh, you in the studio with headphones on, just play, play like you would, would on stage. Let right. that go and the music gonna flow, you know? Right. And have fun, that's what. So we see the West Coast style of playing, they put a lot of swing on it. And I think, you know, you take a look at, uh, I was always wondering how that developed and I came to the conclusion maybe it was the maybe it's the weather. <laughs> you say say the weather. Everybody's maybe. feeling good. Every feeling yeah, it's like it's good. really mild <laughs> out there, so they're just swinging along yeah, and they don't want to sweat too hard yeah. and shit. But you get you get down to the club in Chicago, man, and that hawk hits your ass, and mm -hmm. at nine below zero, and you walk inside, you want to get warm. <laughs> That's right, man. That's what. Well, Chicago, yeah, Chicago is when when you come to playing a lump, Chicago is gonna dig in with a. It's a, it's a, I call it, it's a lump, but it's a power lump. It's a power lump, you know. That we, it's a power lump. It's a power yeah. lump. And you got, and we think it's easy to try, think it's easy to play. It's not. It's not as easy as you no. think it is to try to hold it, hold it for more than a minute. Let me see how you do after that. So Vamp and, and Felton Cruz are two of the ones that you, and what about, you know, the older guys? Like, you know, your dad was with calvin fuzzy jones oh, yeah. for so long i think my my family still got one of first bases too oh really yeah, yeah one is one of them too i think they do but yeah he played that he was one of them he was my favorite he was actually my favorite bass player was calvin fuzzy jones. that is my favorite bass player um from my father era for sure was him and did you get to play with him oh yeah absolutely yeah a lot oh yeah we definitely yeah. did yeah we definitely definitely did he was my favorite um just even he, he had a musical taste, you know, he had, he had this musical taste about him when he played, you know, he can play the same song 300 nights, but it's, the song was played still smoothly, but also differently, you know, and it's in, in, a, in a vein, you know, in vain, kind of has some subtle, subtle things that he would change up in those songs. And I like, I like that about him, you know, and it was solid, you know, just solid as a rock. And don't get me wrong, there's other baseballs I like too, but the, the ones that stand out, you know, those are some of the ones that really stick out in my head from a personal level and on a, you know, just traveling on the road for years and years, you know, with some of them and it's just, and that just that human relationship too. So all of that carry, carry on and off the stage for me. Yeah. It's all really important. If it's, if there's not a good vibe, yeah. then there's no, that's music. right. That's what, yeah, that's yeah. right. So your dad was very close with, um, little Smokey Smothers. Yes. Did they work together a lot? Did they um, like ever record together and tour together? They did. They play. Uh, they did. I want to say did the woke up this morning with the legendary blues band. I think uh, 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 Smokey played on that album with them, with them too. But they were definitely good friends. Um, right. He played on that. But they yeah they played together. They played shows all the time. But that but it's the same that goes to say you know they had they had a relationship on and off that stage you know. If Smokey come over, hey, I need to borrow your van. My father give it to him, you know, no problem, no questions asked. You know, same thing, vice versa. They were all always looking out for each other. Always. Oh no, I know. Towards the end of uh, Smokey's life, your father was really taking care of him. Yes, you know? yes. I mean, he had, we had, we, and, and I, I get. I'm talking about my father, but he was really the, with the whole family. I mean, he was equally right. just as nice with my whole family, and vice versa. If he called me. Same thing. I would he need to go to the airport three in the morning. No problem. I'll take him. No, no problem. No questions asked. It was the same same relationship they had built on. And so Pine Top was probably always around as well. I mean, they were joined at the hip, right? At the hip. That's not a joke. <laughs> not a joke. <laughs> not a joke. Yeah. Same same uh, relationship. Um, 
with, you know, it was just, like I say, for me, it, I had to learn that they was really artists to me to really take that in because I knew them more, more so as, as people, as people and as family. As family, yeah. Always going fishing, going, you know, out there working on the car together, changing, you know, things like that. Even me and Pantop went fishing, just us, you know, right. at an early age, things like that. You know, I never took it in until I got uh, mature enough to go, wow, these, you know, people love them like this, you know, to love, to know that, the world of them in a in a bigger way too, just as as eagerly as we did, you know. Um, right. So that was pretty amazing. When that, that struck, is amazing. Yeah. When that struck that's, me. Yeah. Wow, that's that's a great experience. Yeah. And you know, um, they must have hung out together as well, uh, Pine Top and Little Smokey. Oh yeah, all all of them. I'm telling you, they would have like uh, sometimes Smokey used to, Smokey used to stay right behind us. You know, he used to stay okay. right behind us, so he used to put on these outdoor parties. Um, and where was this? Uh, on 43rd, 43rd Lake Park. Okay. So he would open up a little stage platform, stage. Wow. They'd get out there and jam right there. Every every summer they did it. All on the same strip? Yeah, okay. on the same strip. But, but when that happened, you weren't in Muddy's house. I wasn't in you his house at that time. Not, not yeah, at, that, at time. that time. Yeah. Because we're going to talk about that in a second. But I wanted to um, just chronologically yeah. uh, work this out. 1980. Um, your dad and Pine Top and Jerry Portnoy and the rest of, um, you know, Fuzz all uh, had a, a salary dispute with Muddy and they put their own band together and they, and they quit Muddy's band. Um, how old were you when that happened? So 1980. 1980. Was I was born in 74. So. So you were six. Yeah. Do you remember any of it? Uh, it's. It's kind of it's kind of faintly it's kind of faintly to me because the it was, the music was still going you know they were you know father still on the road so so it's still very you know kind of kind of faintly to me I just knew I knew the band already to me I knew the band already so it was kind of like uh, like it was continuous nothing was really changed yeah, nothing, for you yeah that was really nothing that yeah. changed you know until later you know I started seeing some other faces in the band which I thought was kind of cool too you know just to see other you know. Uh, 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 I want to say Louis uh, Myers, you know, Dave Myers, you know, came through with the legendary a few times too. I remember that. Well, Louis was the original guitar player when Margolin didn't go yes, with the yes. band. They got Louis. Yeah. And so he was the the first exactly. one. Yeah, exactly. I, saw, I saw those guys in Milwaukee, like on a couple of their first gigs. Yeah. They were spectacular. I mean, it yeah. was, and Louis was killing, man. Oh, but yeah. there were a lot of guitar players over the years. <laughs> yeah, they had a lot, and I thought that was pretty cool. Though I, 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 I kind of looked forward to that in a way because it kind of, for me, it was more like a uh, different guitar player. But it, 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 they kept their style, but it made the, made the music, kept the music moving. You know, so for me, as list, as a listener, I go, okay, I like, you know, just kind of would follow along with that. For me, it was more of a learning dialogue. For me, each time they did an album or something like that, I could. Yeah. Early on, they got a young guitar player at, right after Lewis um, to come in, who was quite pyrotechnical and a lot different than them, but was a really talented musician, Melvin Taylor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Check that out. Yeah. Yeah. He right. was really young, man. Yeah, that's he was right. Really that's right. young. That's right. Yep. So as a six-year-old, the, the whole uh, transition from Muddy Waters to the legendary blues band was not a traumatic or big, um, vivid moment uh, for you as a, as, a, as a bystander. As you got older, that band must have 
again, there were a lot of different incarnations of the group. Yeah. Um, so it was a really great opportunity for you to meet a lot of different musicians and to get a lot of different influences. Yes, exactly. So yeah, so it was like, uh, I always look forward to having the, uh, you know, I'll, the, my, the best part I knew when they was going into the studio, best part for me is like, all right, I'm about to get some new music here to practice to and listen to. And so I love, wow. always, I look forward to those album, albums coming out. As I get it, I was so happy to have it because I'm I'm I, I'm gonna play it to death just listening to it and learning, learning from right. it. not just the drums, just learning the uh you know the people in the band, but I'm imagining that I'm actually playing with that band, you know, to the record. You know, I would play to the records, you know. Okay. So. There's a project now that you're involved with that based around the first house that Muddy Waters bought when he came to Chicago and that um, as you mentioned, is was 43rd and South Lake Park, specifically 4339 Lake mm -hmm. South Lake Park. And his great granddaughter, Chandra Cooper, is um, who I guess was when she was born, she was, they, they lived at that house. This is Muddy's great granddaughter. And she bought the house when it was up for sale because she wanted to keep it preserved and wanted to keep it in the family. And so now there's this project, the Mojo Museum, that has come out of it, and you're you're on the board of yes, yeah, the not for profit. And uh, first, I wanted to ask, did you ever run into Chandra back then? Oh, Do you yeah, remember they, her? Absolutely. Um, her, oh, wow. Her, okay. Her and her mom. I mean, they grew they they grew up with us. That's not even a joke. Like mm. we have we have pictures together, sitting out there, you know, on that porch together, all of us, and my sister. Oh, wow. All of us, we have pictures together at that age, you know. Um, Fantastic. Family, they were family. And right. that's how we seen them that much. That's how we, right. even even when the Muddy Waters band stopped, you know, even when uh, the band, you know, Legendary started their band, we still saw them. We still went visiting. Still visited with them. And stuff. All of them, Muddy too, yeah, Muddy too, yeah. Kept the relationship going. Yep. Muddy too, wow. Yeah, muddy too, so. absolutely, Muddy too, because they didn't have, the legendary didn't have the band, uh, the uh, band at the time when they first started out, so I know that they would go get the car for Muddy, and Muddy let them get used the car. Is that right? Yeah, they was yeah, yeah, they was very close all the way up to the, they were very close. And so Willie and Muddy never fell out. No, they would they they never fell never they never they always came even you know they would go still play cars together. But like I said, when the when the band quit, you know Muddy the Muddy band. For whatever the reasons were, they when the legendary had to go out, Willie go over there and get the van and for Muddy and Muddy let him use the van. Pine Top and Smokey had a very similar nickname for you, <laughs> and Smokey used to call you Tita. Mm -hmm. hey, oh, Tita, mm -hmm. man, he he don't eat enough. <laughs> <laughs> he did, and. Uh, uh, he, but he called you Teeter, yeah. and I mean I'm not, and so and then Pine Top called you something very similar. What Tinanchi? Yeah, Tinanchi. So yeah. where did any of that come from? Do you? It, it comes from the name. So what I gathered, my this is when I was first born. My older sister, one of my older sisters, um, Barbara. It, you know, um, they saw me when they first saw me, and they just said, "Oh, he's so tiny. You know, he's so tiny, so tiny." So every tiny, time they see him, they like, where's Tiny? But then it Tiny turned into Tina. Oh, okay. So over the years, it turned into Tina. 
the older ones, my father too would say Tita. That's what he would say, Tita. Tita. Yeah. Yeah. You know. It just it just became a it was a um, thing. Yeah. Evolution. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Evolution of so, a nickname. That's what it came from. Yep. That's how that's how it evolved. That's how everything went down for sure. <laughs> so tell so tell me about the um the Mojo Museum. This is fascinating. Um, yeah, so the Mojo Museum, uh, so Shonda, Chandra owns the building and she was, I remember we had a nice conversation about it and she said, you know, it came to a point, you know, she said, I, I was going to sell it, had my pen to the paper and I I just could not do it. She said, I could wow. not sell it. I owe my grand, my great grandfather this. I owe him this. Mm. Uh, from that point on, she took off. I mean, she took off like lightning uh, to get, you know, get this moving to get the house uh, up you know, up and running. And she said, I want to make it, I want, I want this house to be here when I'm, when I'm dead and gone, I want this house still to be here, you know, preserving his name. Mm -hmm. You see, she said, I have to. So he did so many great things for me. I have to do this. She said, I could not sell it. So that's, so that's where we at. So now she's, you know, it's the Mojo Museum, you know, mm -hmm. so it's uh, going to, it's going to be a museum. It's going to be a house, a house museum, just trying to preserve that history of Chicago that I think is very, very important. And it's the same house that is very important for me because that's where I was born. That was the house I was born in. <laughs> so, you know, I think it's a, the project is, it has a lot of meaning in the house that has a lot of love uh, in it. And it was, if those walls could talk, <laughs> you know. But yeah, I was uh, talking to Dietra recently. We did an interview with her and um, she was talking about Paul Osher um, is on the board as well. Um, and, um, he used to live in the basement with Otis Spann. Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah, he, <laughs> so, he has a ton of stories. Yeah. He has a ton yeah, of those. Long before your time. Obviously. Oh my goodness. But, yeah. He had a yeah. ton of stories. Yeah. He had, he has a ton of stories about the house too. I mean, some of the things that happened in that he does, he really does. He was the very first, uh, white musician that Muddy Waters ever hired. Oh, and, yep, yep. Yeah. And so it's, uh, he's got, definitely has his place in history. In terms of the trajectory of your own career, you apprenticing for years as a real young person. And then when did you get your first professional gig? Huh. Well, my first, I guess, well, first professional and first paying gig. My first paying gig was with, with my father. That was with Willie and the legendary band. Um, and it, it was like 50 bucks. He let me, just, you know, play, play, I think it was like the set, the last set. He let me play the last set. He just sat down and. And how old <laughs> were you? Uh, thir I was thirteen. Yeah, uh, that's uh, that's like thirty-five years ago. Yeah, a fifty was, bucks was, was, was a good amount of money for a thirteen-year-old. I mean, well, man. for a kid now, right? Exactly. Come for a kid now, now right? <laughs> for a kid, for a kid. Don't get me wrong. That was yeah. that was that was that the was odd. That, exactly. Serious, that's right. Serious that's, money, man. Shit. That's right. So he let me play play the whole last set, and that was with the legendary band. That was with the legendary. Amazing. Band. Thirteen years old, you're playing with a legendary blues band. Yeah. So that was good. Yeah, he the whole of the last set. You know, last set, just sit there and, and, and play that whole last set with him. He said at the bar, smoked this cigarette. <laughs> it was it. You know, that was it at that time for you know. So that was, I think, that was what now. Um, and then after that, you know, I started, uh, playing with, I, I want to say tail dragger and rock and Johnny did many years playing with them at the 5105 club early on too. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that was kind of 
That was kind of one of one. That was for some of the fun, fun with Sam Lay too. I did actually play with Sam Lay before that. Like I, I remember those things because they kind of fell in that order. It was all around the same time, but Sam Lay went was you know going out to the front. I mean, just kind of standing out front playing his guitar, but he wanted a drummer to play drums behind him. So I remember him uh, asking my father if I can go on the road with him to play. And so you're maybe 15 at that point about 15 yeah about mm -hmm. 15 yeah so things popping by then by 15 things was popping so it was like 15 by 15 all of those kids was kind of flowing up kind of coming in together kind of all kind of going coming in together like that for sure so at 15 we're talking yeah you're you were born in 72 74 yeah. so this is 89 Okay, yeah. yeah. So that's kind of like right around when I first started maybe seeing Rock and Johnny on the scene. Yeah. So you and him and Tail Dragger were playing on the South Side and on the West Side too, right? Oh, you saw it's on the West Side. Uh, no, no, I didn't. I, no, I was, it was the West Side. It was the West Side, right? Yeah. Like he was yeah. a West Side cat, uh, Tail Dragger. Yeah. yeah, he still is. What was your mom thinking back at that point? You're in these bucket of blood clubs. Well, there was, there was some there was some ground rules. Trust me, I'm, and you can believe believe show. My father had a lot of talks too. You can bet you can bet yep. that. Cause I heard a few. <laughs> I won't even repeat them, but I heard I heard them myself. You know, I heard mm -hmm. I heard stories. You know, and then yeah, I heard the story, so I knew in good hands. And they did. And you know what? And mm -hmm. I was in very good hands. They definitely uh, took care of me. Took great care of you. Yeah, they definitely did. I even say that with even I, even tail dragger, even tail dragger too. I mean. When I when I say that as a kid, you know, he right. he, he he was watching he, things. He, he, he had his eye. Me. He has an eye on you. Yeah. Mm -mm. You know, if to see just say a little lady or somebody just trying to mess with mess with me or mess with me. Mm -mm. No. You wouldn't let them do it. Anybody, nobody. He wouldn't Wasn't going to happen. It. And you didn't have any like problems with the club owners uh, thinking you were too young to be in there. Uh, no, no, I guess I, no, I just kind of, the, the rule was, you know, I wasn't drinking any, I wasn't drinking, I'm gonna play, I kind of, mm -hmm. you know, hair was growing a little bit, so I was letting it grow out <laughs> right. a little bit to look older, you know, so they, they never, they knew I was young, but they knew I'd go, I'd play my, I'd play, um, and then I would normally go back out to the car, out, I'll, I'll leave, leave out the club and just go in my car until it's time to play again, until I kind of do that. Oh, okay, yeah. You know, yeah and so then so then coming out of your late teens what happened did you, did you have any long-term relationships with different bands um uh johnny was one tail drag was one i remember playing with um uh, mark hannon and the fish heads i played with them a long time too actually wow i played with them on harlan terson i played with them but uh that band uh quite a bit too mm -hmm. um back then um it's still a blur because there's so many, so many things going on. I play with Nick Moss band sometime too, and uh, other other um, side men bands, but but still shows. You know, they still had their own shows too. So I jump on those too. You know, mm -hmm. just kind of, just kind of all over the all over the place. Wherever the music was, and I was a fellow. I, I Pete right. Mississippi Heat. You know, Mississippi Heat. I played with them too, uh, right. quite a bit, a long time too. I think I played with them a very long time. With. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Ditra was in there in the beginning, and yeah, that, yeah, and they had uh, Strozier, yeah, James, yep. James Wheeler and Billy Flynn, yeah. Which Strozier is my other bass player doing my doing the modern the, the time too. I like he's one of my favorites too. Doing the of uh, course father era too. That's like that's just a given. That's just a given. <laughs> him and yeah, him and Fuzz were mm -hmm. the standards. Um, yes. Did you ever get to play with Willie Kent? 
Yes, me and Willie, Willie Kent, we played, uh, we did, we did some recording together too, but we did some shows. Yeah, we played together too. I learned, and I learned a lot just from those shows too. I learned, uh, and I want to say we might have been at Lose on Halstead, maybe. Maybe his drummer couldn't make it or something, but I did a show with him there. But I learned, I, I just learned a lot. the legendary Willie Kent singing I Had a Dream off the album Make Room for the Blues on Delmark Records. He was one of the most underrated giants of the blues yes, in yes, my yes. esteem. I mean, his exactly. voice was absolutely exactly. blues incarnate. I mean, exactly. He had it. Mm -hmm. that, he had it. He's one of the greatest blues singers I ever heard. And he there's an urgency and a uniqueness to his voice that just mm -hmm. is un, unparalleled. And, yes. and he was a truly great band leader. He was a band leader. I mean, yeah. any didn't matter who was in his band. It never raised above a certain volume. Right. It was always this really smooth, really mm -hmm. controlled sound you know and there was none of that guitar hero bullshit in yeah. his band you know yeah. he, he kept every, and he had two great guitar players willie davis and um jake dawson yeah you know later of course guy king was in his yeah. band yeah guy king too yep every year you do a show down in west helena arkansas at the king biscuit yeah. blues festival talk a little bit about that and your relationship to west helena arkansas yeah that's pretty cool <laughs> yeah that's that's a lot of good stories down there so uh down in helena my my father you know his band and hubert hubert slim they all used to go down there and play that festival it's the same it's the town where my father grew up in um that's where we had family in i, I like the joke when I see half of the people walking down the strip, they, I guarantee they can't, they can to me. Some of them, there's a lot wow. of them to me. I can guarantee. I might not know them right off the bat, but I can guarantee I didn't cross rub shoulders with them. For uh, sure. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> so That's, did you used to go down there as a child with your dad to visit family? Yeah. Just to uh, so we go to Helena every year. That was part of the summer vacation. We go to uh, St. Louis, pick up my mother's sister. We head to Mississippi. To go see my mother, mom, and then we circle back to go to Helena to go see my uh, father and his family down there mm -hmm. in Helena. Every year, consistently, that's what we did. Wow. 
and then this festival started at some point and then the fest yeah and then the festival started yep and he i i mean long as i can remember he was he's had been doing that festival every every year i know up in in 2006 or 7 was when i really started going really started digging in and going to the festival with him all the time too you know just um playing with playing with him actually performing with him and also um just hanging out you know sometime when he passed away i uh I, I kept the festival you know kept it the the tradition going and kept going down there and so i still go down there now till this day to, to perform at the king biscuit the stage is set up differently but it used to be right where the old railroad track is now you know that uh -huh. old railroad track the way you was to catch a train to hop to go to chicago to get out of town you know that's okay. what my father told me, like, this is where I, this is a track right here. I took when I left here and went to Chicago, you know, wow. so they had the stage set up on that side. It used to be on that side wow. uh, of the tracks. Yep. First. Yep. And so, how old was he when he moved to Chicago? He was, what did he do? I can't remember now. Uh, it looks like he was, you know, in his uh, late teens when he moved to Chicago. You know, I don't know if they've made a decision due to COVID, but are you going to be back there this year or do you know? Yeah, it's supposed to be, if everything happens, if everything happens on schedule, we'll be back there uh, in October. Okay. Somewhere around October 8th. You also uh, on the side are quite the, the businessman. And um, <laughs> you have a, a music booking agency. What, what does that look like? Yeah, that's, that's another part of me that has to come out just equally as much as I have to play drums. That's another part I have to like express. So um, with the booking agency, you know, I, it's the, the regular old booking, you know, booking out band, I book out bands, uh, blues bands, but a lot of bands of different genres for uh, festivals, literally, I don't care what events, uh, you name it, just every event from that to a corporate event to weddings, you know, all the time. So I, I just form this, this where I got um what's the, got what's the name of your company ring of music and you've got how many bands that you book I work with uh shoot in bands I work well I put it this way I work with a a hundred a hundred probably a hundred and two musicians that I work with wow that have their own form bands you know have they have their own bands too and they all kind of trickle in their own way too so what I do is I just pull a talent you know I, I know I know I, I know the music enough and uh, who's a good fit and when is when when is appropriate you know well, I mean I absolutely yeah. so you're you, you you're a curator you know how to curate yeah, yeah. and that's yeah, that's yeah. So that's, that's really cool. where mm -hmm. I'm at yeah that's kind of where that's kind of how it kind of flows I love that stuff congratulations on all of that you know this is blues and world report so <laughs> I, I want to talk a little bit about some of the things that are happening in the world right now um, okay. and, and how that how it crosses over into the intersection of your experience as a, as a blues artist. There's a historic racial reckoning going on in the United States right now, ignited by the public murder and torture of George Floyd and dozens of other cases of police violence like Breonna Taylor and uh, um, um, Tamir Rice, uh, Maude Arbery and Michael Brown, Tremont Martin, Eric Garner. I mean, the list goes, I mean, it's, it, it's endless. And, um, you know, uh, these are the ones that are caught on camera. And um, so we can uh, safely assume that, that they're only a, a fraction of, of what occurs in this country on a regular basis. And Black Lives Matter has become a very powerful um, force in change, internationally recognized movement. You know, even two years ago, the term white supremacy was not 
uttered that often, you know, and now, you know, it's on everybody's lips. How has this spilled over into the blues world and the blues industry? I'm looking forward to see how that's going to pan out after COVID. From all walks of life, people are really calling that out. So I, I definitely waiting to see how that's going to really trickle down to the blues. We share the music, but you still have, as, as an African-American, you have, we share the music. That's fine, but you cannot take credit for a music that you didn't create. You can't, you just can't, you cannot do that. But it's like, I mean, I don't care what religion you are. You can't take Jesus out the Bible, no matter how hard you try and dance and, you know, whatever you do, you can't, you can't take that part away from where, where it really come from. So that part, it was already something that I was scuffling with on my own. And I have been um, speaking out about that when uh, a lot more, even, you know, just period in the last couple of years, even before all this had been happening, I had been really writing letters to the people that this needs to get to that I'm my concerns that I had, you know, been having with some of those things. And that's one of them is I'll share, we share the music and that's, that's fine, but you cannot just say, you know, this is, is your music or take my name out of the music. You know, you take me all the way out of the picture and that's a problem. You can't have a blues fest. You can't have a blues fest without African-American on it. You shouldn't. I mean, it's just kind of like, it's kind of an insult to me. That's just more of a kind of an insult. And it, that can, might be of my old age, but I think that's just kind of an insult if you, you're doing something like that. I just think it is. You know? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, you're somebody who's uh, been in the trenches your whole life and your father made his living from this music that came from your people. And so when you see festivals that don't include people who look like you in them, it's got to be, you know, to say the least, frustrating. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's more, it's more. I guess it's to me, it's more saddening. You know, I don't even, mm. I just, it's it's, sad, it's a sad feeling. Put it that way. Mm. It's, it's more of a sad feeling because I know, I know what the blues really mean. I know the struggle behind it. I know struggle. I know the true struggle of what that means in that sense. It's not mm -hmm. just a gimmick. It's not a gimmick. When I when I play the, the blues, it's not a gimmick. It's playing. I'm playing from a true some grit. <laughs> you know holding back the tears sometime, you know, playing. So it's a bittersweet when it comes down to that. So yeah, that's, when I see that up there, you know, you're dancing and prancing like, and there's no African-Americans nowhere near blues festival, to, you know, stage. I do have a problem with that. Absolutely. It's a heritage music that has a really deep spiritual component to it, you know, for you. And I, um, I've been, blessed to be on stage with you for years and feel that intensity and that, uh, you know, presence that you bring to every stage that you're on. You're conjuring your ancestors when you're on stage. And I feel it, you know, anybody, and people see it. Exactly. You know it. You know it. I want, I want that music to be represented in a way where it is coming to, to, to the artists, to, I mean, true artists. I, and when I when I say when I say that, I'm saying that to the people who really in the grit. You know, I'm, the people who's not. You know, don't forget about the, don't forget about the real artists, the ones that's really down there, really in in the trenches, really playing it, really every day, yeah. truly out there doing it and playing it. And right. the one, and I do have a problem with artists that that stepped on the step on the back of the blues. If you're gonna use it as a stepping stone, at least come back to where you found it at and pull some of these artists in with you and say, hey, look, I learned this from so-and-so. This is the guy I learned it from. This is, Absolutely. you know, these, 
Absolutely. These are some of the musicians out here who really, truly out here playing. Respect them, too. I know you like me. Yeah. Respect these guys, too. You know? Yeah. I would have more respect for artists like that who's bringing in, um, you know, the ones who's really in the trenches playing than just, like, say, step on our, step on them back. You don't, you don't, and you, you can say you don't hear nothing from them. You don't see no social media or nothing from them for his blues related. You don't see anything coming out, you know, even throwing encouragement to even the younger artists that's out there playing. Right. So those things, I do have a problem with those, with those things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so you think that perhaps some of the change that people are trying to put in, in action right now might spill over into the blues world, and and maybe we'll see some some different uh, policies in how bands are booked and who is being booked. Yeah, and I want what they look yes. like. Yes, I want to see that, I, and and I want to be and I want that to be judged on a thing. Another thing that I, I gripe with is like just saying, you know, you have. I even take myself for an example, just because it's easier. But just say I play. I'm a drummer. You mm -hmm. know, I play drums. I've been doing it my whole entire life. You know, but if you see somebody come out who clap their hands and stomp their feet, and you say, "Oh, that he, he's a prodigy. He, he look at him. He's a pro." And I'm like, you know, something like that. That's you know, see something like that. I go. No, he just, that's not, no, not really. <laughs> right. You know, so I have a problem with, and that's definitely something I see that uh, I hope that changes, that that change comes, that way you can acknowledge somebody of my color um, just as equally as you can somebody else of, as a diff different color. Changes. And so what young artists on the scene have you uh, uh, encountered that you're keeping your eye on right now who are keeping the blues tradition alive? Uh, one of one of the good ones that I really I I, I really enjoy, um, and he takes it way back. I do like I like Quan Willis. I like him a lot. Um, his guitar playing, I just I like it because he's not a uh, he's not showboating. He's not out there licking a guitar and anything like that. He's not he's, <laughs> playing, he's playing yeah the blue right. So and, John Tavius Willis, they call him Quan yeah, Willis. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's one of them that I really I, I I like because he's not like I say he's not doing all that. He's not dancing. Dancing out there, what are you doing? He's digging into the, he's really digging into it. When you do that, he can do anything he want. He can play anything he want, yeah. anytime he wants. Oh, he's fabulous, man. He is, so he I, is fabulous. That I, really, yeah. I really admire for that, for just take, taking, even just to take his take a chance and just do that and really dig in and start digging into the music like that. Right. You know, so I respect him for that, for sure. So you got him, he's about 25 years old. Now, yeah, now he is, but he's been playing a while. But even before that, he's been. Yeah, he, he was amazing at eighteen. You know? yeah, yeah. yeah, and yeah, he's been is. championed by you know Taj Mahal and uh, yeah, Kevmo, like and mm -hmm. so people have been um, really talking about him. And then he's got a couple of partners that are also around his age that he's hanging with. So, have you come across Marquise Knox? I've seen, I, yeah, I've seen my crush. I guess we played with the play. I've seen him before too. Uh, play a little, little bit. But funny, the funny part about that is we, when he's playing, I'm actually playing too. Right. Somewhere else. So we kind of in the. I never really, truly get the chance to really hear him, hear him play. To really hear him play, I never had the chance because when I see him, he's on a stage and I'm jumping to another, and I'm jumping on another stage somewhere. So I never really get to hear him, to be honest. To, right. To give. Uh, on his opinion, but I'm happy that even still with that being said, I'm still happy he's out there playing and performing, you know, and yeah, still he's a little older. He's about 30. And, okay. And I mean, I know who he, I definitely know who he is. Yeah. And then there's, um, this really young guy, 21 years old or 22 now Kingfish. 
Oh yeah, and Kingfish too. Yeah, he's out there, and King Kingfish been out there for a while too. He's been, uh, and he's he's been digging into he's been digging into his into his chops too. So that's I, I like him a lot too. Yeah, I, I like the young ones that's uh, k- k- trying to carry it on. You know, right? Equally, that's, you got to do. It's what it's part. It's part of the tradition and what you try to you know you try to do. You won't get everybody to do it, but you get you get some to do it. That's you know that carries keeps it going. Like, what is the tradition when they talk about traditional blues? What does that What does that mean to you? Um, what well, tradition to me is you, well, I guess the way I've, I've learned it, always thought about it in my head. The tradition is always the root. It's the root of the plant. If you don't have the root, I don't, you if you don't have the root, nothing else going to grow, period. You just, you just it's going to die pretty fast. Right. So as long as you got that root in there, no matter what you plan, no matter what you plan, as long as you got the root in there, everything else is going to strive all around it. Right everything. On. Take away the root. Goodbye. That's not gonna last too long. That's yeah. just the way. That's the real deal. That's how. So that's how I should uh, describe the tradition. It's always. I don't care what music I'm playing. I don't care what style I'm playing. There's still tradition uh, engraved in me. There's still blue stuff that's gonna come out of me. I don't care what style of music that I'm playing. It's still gonna come out in some form and fashion. In you know in there because the root is deep. I'm just so dug in so deep. You know. In there too, right. so I don't care. We can go in. I'll take you any place we want to go. We fly to the moon and back. You know, right, right. <laughs> I don't care, but it's, I still have the root in me. So that's how I kind of the tradition for me. Mm-hmm. That's how. I, I, well, listen, man, that's that's beautiful, and I, you know, um, I think that people need to be um, cognizant of that root and of how it anchors and feeds everything else. But I also yep. know that part of the tradition is to seek new sounds and new feels and and right. and that that's also part of the tradition of right. of of black music you know um and he, interesting hearing you talk about your influences and how you put them all together and created your own thing with them and that's what the goal is is to create as an artist you know and an artist, yeah, yeah. An artist. and so you know get in on your process and how you were able to how you had in this amazing um access to some of the greatest you know, yeah. blues musicians uh, in history, and then how, ha- and then how you move forward with that, you know, is exactly. And I was lucky to have, I was lucky to just to have those experiences. Like one, one that I always, I always laugh about is, and I, I, it's funny, even on stage, something that I always do, and I think it's a part of me. It's like I have all of this in me, but a piece of me that I know is me is I can, I can't, I don't read a mind, but I can hear the music. I can almost know where the music gonna go. You know, I can know where an instrument is going to go. I can kind of follow along with what they're going to do almost before they can do it. I just know in my head, in my heart, it's like my hands, it's making me go wherever they go. I'm going there almost before they can even do it. I'm there with them to make those moves, you know, those dynamic moves. I think that's something of I, I give my own self credit for that piece, little little piece. I'm um, a witness. I'm a witness. Like, uh, it's like almost like. It's almost like a telepathic thing, but or in riding a wave, something like that. I can't even describe it in a big word, but that's kind of how. Um, you know what I call it? What's that? Listening. And hey, that's <laughs> and that is a big word. And that is one big word that is needed. You're right. You're absolutely listening, right. man. I mean, you you blow my mind sometimes on stage. Yeah, you know, because yeah. you know where I'm going before I do. And you literally do. And it's like, I'm like, wow. And it's because you're listening, you know. And also there is some sort of a telepathic thing that happens, man. I agree. Lincoln, we're almost linking up. You're linking up. It's a mind meld. 
that's really <laughs> no joke. That's how it goes. So that's something. But I got that from you know, just it's kind of you know, everybody kind of combined together, and then it's a piece of myself that's going to explode when it comes out when I get on stage. That's how I look at it. You know, I don't know what going to truly come out at that moment when I play. But I know something's coming out, and and it's going to be coming with all my grit, you know. Absolutely, and you know, I've watched you grow up over the years, and um, seen that power just snowball and snowball, you know. And you get up on stage with an intense amount of concentration and energy, and you, you know, when I think about you behind the drum set, your chest is out your head is craned up and you're looking at everything you know you don't curl up and close your eyes and you're totally present when you're at the drum set and you're always watching me i mean i just have to you know move my elbow and you're on it you know and sometimes i don't even have to do anything and you're on it you know that's a lesson for you know a lot of these drummers who um come up on stage grab a hold of the groove and uh close their eyes and bend their neck down and um sort of disappear yeah you know you're a spiritual leader when you're on the bandstand it's amazing to um experience that to have to have seen it evolve um, and to see all of the great work that you've, you're doing with your, your booking agency, with um, mentoring younger players. You've worked with a lot of younger up-and-coming players, yeah. and they've been very lucky to have your experience, which is four decades long, at least at this point. Uh, yeah. 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 So congratulations on all of that, man. You're, you're at the top of your field and really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and and doing this and i hope you know on the other end of this we can do some jamming <laughs> that's right man i look forward i look forward to us getting out there and do some more do some more jamming too and got to, and even being said let's take this for a last comment too even though you know i'm a, i'm a african-american you know you caucasian you know we you get on the stage but that's still a true bond when we get on the stage when it hits the music too we there's something to be said there's something to be said from for that too on a personal level from for me and you too i've learned a lot from you too so let's take that don't i don't take that for granted either you know you push me you push my limits too you know to mm -hmm. push it out i mean i say it wasn't there but you push it out to say okay let's do this mm -hmm. all right let's go you know so you push some things out of me too so give yourself credit for that too so that goes a long way too well, i appreciate that that's uh that's really generous of you and i want to end with uh, an experience that i had with you um that i'd like you to talk about of course i didn't write it down so i forgot about it but i don't want to leave this interview without asking you what th that experience going to africa with me and bill sims and brother larry bill sims jr and that was your first time going to africa and it was bill's first time can you just tell me what that was like for you yeah that was uh i yeah i just remember getting off that plane um just traveling there was just kind of like an art just even traveling to africa <laughs> and during that time, we traveled. I had to travel uh, before I met up with you guys. I had to travel by myself, so so I just took it in right at that moment. So when I hit the ground at the even at the hotel, it just kind of like it was a different world, man. It was just a different different world from that from that point on. Because we hit we we played so many places that shook me. I mean, when I say shook me, I mean I, I came back home with a, a new perspective of life, what life means, the things that. Uh, we take for granted the littlest things, you know, I took, I took like, I'm like the homeless here, they doing pretty good. Mm, you know? mm, <laughs> Some of them, mm -hmm. you know? so I took, I took 
it's for granted. And just to have that that spiritual connection um, to the people around me, are they my relatives? I don't know, but I definitely felt like they were, all of them. Mm-hmm. Or related was related to me when we was there and just to sit there and even we had a jam with some of them you know we had a jam with uh a lot of those musicians sure um, when we were there too and i thought it was just it was, you know brought tears to my eye yeah you know? we we played with uh some of the great malians sure. and mauritanian musicians yeah. um bubakar triore was there yep and Basaku Kiyote was there, the great Malian Nagoni master, as well as Maluma, who was a senator and accomplished woman singer, celebrated woman singer from Mauritania. Just take me to that moment when you get off the plane and you look around, you know, and oh, man. what are you seeing? First thing, well, I, the, I, to be honest, first thing I seen, even when I got to... Um, I mean, just, okay, driving from the hotel, I mean, I'm seeing, you know, I'm seeing huts and I'm seeing, you know, I'm seeing goats and all these, I mean, anim- just animals kind of around, I, you know, that was something new. And But I'm seeing people, I'm seeing, you know, that look looked like me. So it felt, it felt comfortable. It felt comfortable right off you the bat. You, you're, you saw people who looked like you. Yeah, looked, yeah. looked like me, you know, they just, it felt, I felt, so it felt, it was comforting off the bat, you know, it wasn't just one or two people, you know, you right. know, I mean, just hundreds of people just, you know, in huts, you know, and around. So I, that made me comfortable off the bat, you know, I get to the hotel, you know, they're playing, um, you know, they're playing the instruments at the hotel, they're dancing, you know, and the, the music is, I'm vibing to the music. It just was like, uh, it was a party, but it was like, uh, it was a like a spiritual. It was just just like yeah, be I'm just it's almost like being home. You know, it's just like being being home. Like something about this something about this place is definitely I'm drawn to yeah. here. There's something to be said for that. You know, yeah. something. Well, yeah. you know, when you when you walk into a dining room in the hotel and you see a hundred black folks in yeah. there, and the only white folks that are there, you brought with you. Um, it's like it's amazing and and i remember a moment when we were at the embassy in bamako in mali these diplomats came walking strolling right up to bill sims and this one guy opened up his arms and he said welcome home my brother yeah we, I get emotional now. We're all crying. I mean, it was yeah, like, wow, absolutely, absolutely. And there was many, <laughs> moments, many, many moments like that. Man, there was many moments like that. There. Yeah. I mean, we went to the refugee camp. I mean, that too. Think about. Oh that. my God, those returnee camps were incredible. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The refugee camp in in uh, wait Mauritania, Mauritania, in yeah. Aleg, Aleg in, in Mauritania, yeah. yes. way deep in the sub-Saharan desert. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, man, that's good. I just, I had to get that in there. We'll do this again sometime. There's so much more to talk about. Definitely. Thank you so much. Thanks, man. That was blues drum master Kenny BDI Smith. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Blues and World Report. I'll be broadcasting new episodes every couple of weeks. So look out for my next interview. It'll be with blues guitarist and vocalist extraordinaire Lurie Bell. If you want to support this podcast, please consider donating at paypal.me forward slash Chicago Wind. 
W-I-N-D. That's paypal.me forward slash Chicago Wind. While we're getting this project off the ground, your donations are our only means of support. So thank you in advance for your generosity. All right, everybody, stay safe out there and get vaccinated. Wear your mask and remember, always believe your eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah.